Wade Davis is a legendary anthropologist and author. His most recent book is Magdalena, River of Dreams. This is Wade Davis. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. This is a podcast? Yes, sir. Okay, great. And uh, great. Got a big whack of uh, Amazonian coca powder in my mouth. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. What, what 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 is coca powder? Is that just uh, I'm, I'm a little unfamiliar. Is that just chocolate or is that uh, no 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 no? It's a plant from the Amazon. Does it does it is it like a stimulant? Yeah, I'm very mild stimulant. Okay, <clears throat> it's sort of like a cup of coffee instead of a cup of coffee kind of thing. I see. Uh, not available in stores though. I imagine mm, not yet, but that we're working on it. There you go. Uh, great. So I, I should, just, I'm here with Wade Davis. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. You bet Duncan. Uh, so your life feels very, uh, Indiana Jonesy, um, to, to put it mildly. Um, I, I, you're, you're going all, all over the world, living with indigenous tribes and, uh, getting yourself in all kinds of interesting, uh, and insightful messes. Uh, how, like, I'm just, I'm very curious with people who live uh, unusual lives. How did you get involved with all of this stuff? This is not something you plan out ahead of time. No, I think, <clears throat> I think Duncan, um, you know, in general, lives can't be planned. You know, we, 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 we kind of, um, even in the structure of our schools and the pedagogy of our schools, we sort of, you know, almost deceive young students into thinking that life is linear that if you go you know you do, you go from a to b to c if you skip d and e you don't get to the rest of the alphabet yeah. and the truth of the matter is as anyone knows who's lived any life especially an interesting fulfilled life is that it's actually made up of all these serendipitous moments when you come to a crossroads and what you want to cultivate as a young person is some kind of inner compass so that when you go to, to come to one of those crossroads you're not listening to your peers, your parents, or the ghosts of the past, the society, but some kind of inner compass that tells you which direction to go. And um, the reason that's so important is that at the end of the day, the most creative challenge in a life is to be the architect of that life. And bitterness tends to come in older age to those who look back on a series of decisions or choices imposed upon them Whereas I've certainly found at my age of now 67, that those amongst my friends and peers who are content are those who can look back on a life in which they may, maybe didn't make always the right decisions, but at least they own those decisions. And so they did become the architects of their lives. And, 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 and that can only kind of result in um, uh, gratitude um, and, and contentment uh, and sometimes pride. You know, I think for, for young people, um, the, the, the most important thing you can do is to be an opportunist, not in the sense of being a schemer, but putting yourself in the way of opportunities so that where there's no choice but to succeed, and you suddenly find yourself capable of doing things uh, that would have been beyond your imaginings a few short months or years before. Um, you know, Jim Whitaker, the first American to climb Everest, said that if you uh, if you're not living on the edge when you're young, you're taking up too much space. Right. And my friend Terrence McKenna always said that, you know, the great lesson of, the, of life 
is that you come to the edge of the cliff and you jump and you don't land on cold rocks, you land on a feather bed. The, the world kind of exists to lift you up, not to put you down. And I certainly had no idea at any point in time what I was gonna become. In retrospect, uh, my, 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 my strength was not being decisive. I was the antithesis of that. My strength wasn't knowing what I wanted to do because it wasn't ever clear to me. But in retrospect, the one thing that I viscerally was incapable of doing was compromise. And one of the things that I say to young people is, is there's so much pressure on you from within and from without to sort of come out of college or to come out of high school knowing what you're going to do in life, right. um, that people panic and they grab, the, grab vocations like they're kind of life boys. And the truth is, it takes time to formulate something that has never existed before, which is the full dimensions and the full wonder of a unique human life. So I always say to young people, never compromise, be patient and give your destiny time to find you. And in, in a sense, that's what I did. I mean, I, you know, if, if I've had a number of biographical films and, and pieces done on me, and my sister always says the one thing that these biographers have never grasped is how tough you are. And what she means by that, not in some kind of macho physical strength, as much as, um, you know, nobody, given my background, was more ambitious, not for fame or money ever, uh, but to know what I was going to do. You know, you know how, where that, that shining light as a young person, where am I going to put this energy? How am I going to live this life? I'm, how am I going to make my mark? You know, how am I going to not waste my time? What is my calling in life? That, 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 that classic sort of set of questions one has, existential questions when you're young. And I had those questions in spades and I desperately wanted to answer them. And, and, and uh, as my sister would remark, you know, um, instead of grabbing at something, I, I for, for, for not necessarily comfortable reasons, I was just not capable of compromise. And in the end, I ended up, of course, making life that had never happened before. You know, I mean, a, a unique, way of life that no one can ever replicate. It doesn't mean it's the best way or the only way, but it's a unique way, you know, and, and, uh, but that entailed going through a good decade or more of, of incredible um, uncertainty uh, at a time when, you know, my friends were falling away into law school and, and, uh, and medical school and, and, uh, and professions. And I, I, you know, I always thought that a job, well, first of all, I never wanted to have a job because the word job comes from the French word Gobert, medieval French, meaning to devour. And my father had a job all of his life. He called it the grind. And as a little boy, I thought he got smaller every day and, and he did. Um, work is an Anglo-Saxon root meaning to inspire and create. And I always say to young people, never have a job if you can avoid it, but work harder than anybody and all will be well. And I've, no one has ever worked harder than me. You know, I, I mean, I've gone 12 years without taking a day off, you know, when I wrote one book, for example. But the point, the point is that, that um, because I was not capable of compromising uh, much as I wanted to find out what my destiny would be, 
Um, I, I was, I'd never thought that a, a vocation was like a coat that you tried on, like some kind of jacket, you know, it was something that built around you bit by bit, um, choice by choice. You know, I, I, I really had the strong sense that nothing was beneath you and nothing was a waste of time unless you made it so. Uh, and so I never, I never distinguished in terms of value or, or hierarchy, if you will, um, the year I spent in a tough West Coast logging camp from the years I spent at Harvard. You know, a, a taxi driver can have as much to teach you as a professor. Um, and um, and I, I just, you know, followed my intuitions and I never compromised. And, and, you know, the other thing I learned that was extremely important is that, I mean, how often, Duncan, in school, did you hear someone say, oh, that's Joey, he's really creative? Or that, you know, Rebecca, boy, is she a creative girl? The implication being that some people are creative and some people aren't, or that creativity is some kind of um, thing that exists in the abstract. No, creativity is never um, the motivation of activity or of action. It's a consequence of activity and action. You can't be creative if you don't do. If you want to be an explorer, get out and explore. If you want to be a photographer, take pictures. If you want to be a writer, don't talk about it, write. And that's something I, I, I learned. And, and that really accounts for how, you know, someone like me who, who came from a very simple middle-class Canadian family with loving parents, and it was a... a, a um, you know, a complicated family in ways, but a loving family and a generous family, but not a creative family in the sense that my parents didn't do a whole lot. They were kind of trapped in that post-war commuting suburban, you know, bourgeois thing. There weren't a lot of books being read in my house, films being watched or, or, or music being heard. Um, but, but, you know, they, 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 they worked very hard to send me to find schools and that was their generosity. But, but, you know, in the end, I became a creative person just by teaching myself and, say, and, and, and knowing that I had to do it, you know. I mean, necessity is the greatest, uh, um, you know, support of invention, as they say. Um, you mentioned Harvard in there. And here's where, I don't know if I would call this a, a pushback or uh, it feels as though uh, when you were coming up as a young man, in the 60s and 70s, uh, it feels uh, as though we're living in a somewhat different world where I read about how you chose to go to Harvard and uh, start studying anthropology, very serendipitous. Like you, you, were not, um, you were not scheming to get into Harvard from a young age. Mm -mm. The thing is nowadays, nobody really just gets into Harvard by accident. The, the, well, no, I mean, don't get me wrong. I didn't get into Harvard by accident. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I uh, you know, I, I, I was one of 90 freshman scholars out of a class of 1500, you know, where, which was a non, it wasn't a cash scholarship, but it was a recognition. I mean, I was, I was a top candidate. I mean, I, you know, um, and I, I know, you know, I mean, I was a top academic student in my school. I was a provincial debating champion. You know, I had, at the age of 15, I had a pilot's license. I, I came from an unusual part of the world for them at that time. I don't think anyone else had ever gone to Harvard from British Columbia at that time. Maybe they had. I'm not trying to lay claim to that, but it wasn't common. Um, you know, I'd grown up working in the bush, fighting forest fires, and, and I had a, a unique profile at a time when I think those schools really were attempting to, um, you know, attract a range of students. And um, 
and I was made for Harvard. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, Harvard made my life, but I was, I was, uh, you know, it was, wasn't an accident that a few years ago I was given the Centennial Medal, which is the top award at Harvard for graduate students who, given you know each year to two or three graduate alumni of the graduate student program um, across the entire university from poetry to physics uh, who have used their Harvard degree to do most good work in the world. And that to me was a tremendous honor. Um, so don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not being uh, casual in terms of um, how much Harvard meant to me. Right. And, and uh, but also how appropriate I was for Harvard, you know, at that time. But I think, I think a, a difference is an, a really important point. I still think at a place like Harvard, you go to that school um, uh, because of the quality of the peer group. You know, I mean, I learned so much more. I mean, I, I, I literally, you know, it, it is true that I, I, uh, I didn't learn about Harvard through this. I mean, we had, a, my mother had a friend who was from a New England family and her son had gone to Harvard. And so, so this idea of those, American schools was in our family, uh, beyond reach, but in our family. And um, I, I certainly had a feeling coming out of high school that I wanted to go at least 3000 miles away from home. And I not because I didn't like my parents, right. I wanted to use the opportunity of college to discover a new world. So I wasn't, I'm not trying to suggest I was a naive, but it's also true that the summer before, applications were due at these universities I was fighting forest fires and our camps were full of draft dodgers and and they had this kind of charisma that was hot to the touch um telling our bosses to piss off for example and um one of them had the life magazine with the harvard student strike on the cover of 1969 and you know this was an era when the whole counterculture thing was seeping into Canada from the States. Greenpeace was founded in Vancouver. We were all listening to the Grateful Dead and the airplane and, and, and those psychedelic bands. And we were all kind of experimenting with drugs, right? And so there was this allure of the United States that, that was, uh, you know, I didn't even apply to a Canadian university. Um, and, um, uh, and I applied randomly to Williams and Princeton and Brown and Harvard not really knowing anything about any of them. Um, and I got into all four. So my headmaster wanted me to go to Princeton. Well, I guaranteed I wasn't gonna to go to Princeton. And uh, just, I just picked Harvard. I mean, not really for any particular reason. And, um, and I, I literally arrived there with my steamer trunk um, at the Logan Airport. And I really didn't know where the college was. And my parents didn't have the money to come down to Boston from British Columbia. And I saw a black guy in the airport with a Harvard t-shirt on. I thought, well, he's got to know where the university is. He didn't know either. So I dragged my trunk through the subway and got to Harvard Square. And, and, and it's quite true that my mom had made a mistake and the dorms weren't open for a few days. And I had nowhere to stay. I had no money, uh, literally no money, because the, I was supposed to get money from the bank in, in Cambridge. And it wasn't open for three days. Uh, so I dragged my trunk through the streets until I found a church and I, I knocked on the door and this pastor opened up the church and he, um, but he, he welcomed me in with, I sort of fell in love with America at that moment. Uh, but at the same time, he was a war resistor. So his basement was full of people about to flee to Canada. So I got kind of radicalized within 24 hours of arriving and, and, and spent most of my first year doing kind of radical politics. In fact, a handful of us, all freshmen made the last university-wide 
Harvard student strike in 1972 when Nixon bombed Haiphong Harbor, or was it, yeah, 72 it was. I think it was 70, yeah, 72, or maybe it was, no, maybe early 73. And um, no, it was, uh, anyway, what doesn't matter. Right. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I, and I participated in, in things and, and, and riots and, 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 and takeovers and stuff that ought to have gotten me thrown not only out of the university, but out of the country. And unfortunately, I was never, never caught. Um, or, or labeled. But the point is that in the spring of my freshman year, the deadline for announcing your major was the next day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had taken some history courses, which was my favorite subject and been a little disillusioned by them. They seemed dull and dead and very much of yesteryear. And um, I, uh, I had never taken an anthropology course, but I, 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 by chance, I was in the Museum of Ethnology, the Peabody Museum, and walked out having seen all these fantastic exhibits of distant exotic societies. And I ran into a friend in the street and I said, Stuart, what are you going to major in tomorrow? The deadline was the next day. And he said, anthropology. And I literally did say, what's that? And he said, well, you read about Indians. And then like Forrest Gump, I said, that'll do. And that's how I became a student of anthropology apology and then i then i really became enchanted with it now that said again you know uh, don't get me wrong you know i my mother had had inner wisdom i worked very hard uh in 1967 to afford to send me to join a group of schoolboys uh that a teacher was taking to cali colombia in the summer of 1968 now at that time most canadians and americans had never been in an airplane so the south american destination was very exotic and uh, I, I was the youngest of the group. And whereas many of the older lads were suffered from what the Colombians called mamitis or homesickness, I literally felt that I had finally found home. I just love the energy of Latin America. I, it, it felt like the, it really did feel like the home in the community I'd never known in, 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 in the kind of the boring, uh, stiff and uptight um, world of Protestant um, Canada, if you will. And uh, uh, so I, I had that foreign bug. Uh, and, and, and also, you know, even going back further than that, um, when I was a little, little boy growing up in Montreal during the time of the two solitudes, I grew up in an English community um, that had been plunked like a carbuncle in the back of an old Francophone village that went back to the 17th century. And there was literally a boulevard, Cartier Boulevard, that divided French from English. And there was a little shop on the corner that my mom would send me to at the age of six to buy her cigarettes or milk or whatever she needed. And I remember even at that age, I'd perch on that stoop and look across the boulevard and think, wow, there's across that one street, there's another language, another religion, another way of life. Uh, and I wanted to cross that road. And I did, ignoring all the ghosts of bigotry and, and prejudice in my, in my community. And in a sense, I've been crossing that road all of my life as an anthropologist. So there was that, that yearning was in me, that openness to the other, if you will, that, uh, that deep curiosity about um, different cultures, different languages. You know, I had had that from growing up in Quebec with French, of course, and, and in Colombia with Spanish. So, you know, I, I, was, I was not a naive when I went to Harvard in that sense. Uh, and then similarly, you know, again, um, I think we also benefited. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the circumstances today from then. Um, you know, I think with, without doubt, 
it's a whole lot harder to get into Harvard now than it was then, just like it was harder to get in when I got in than it was in the 1940s. Um, and, I, and I think that the, the uh, commodification of university, I mean, you know, I mean, why do people try so hard to get their kids into Harvard? It's very simple. Um, you know, mother, mothers and fathers to both for the aspirations of both and, and basic ec economics for your generation of parents, not you, but your mom and dad, Duncan, uh, both had to work and both did work. And there was always that tension between workspace and home space and whether kids were raised by nannies or in daycare or in summer camps or whatever, you know, there was this thing of buying commodities for your kids, buying experiences for your kids. Because if Johnny got into Harvard, you could finally say at the end of the day, I must have been a good parent. And I think there was a lot of that going on in your generation, right? That wasn't the case in my generation. I mean, my, my, my parents didn't know anything about Harvard, couldn't have cared less, really. I'm sure they were proud that I got in, but, you know, it wasn't, it just wasn't that big a, a, a deal. Um, but there was also a very, very strong spirit in the wind, um, completely different from today, where, where, I mean, people go to Harvard today seeking careers. You know, they, they go to Harvard uh, seeking to make money. Making money is not only good, it's lionized by your generation. I mean, I, I had a nephew... Uh, at Harvard uh, not that long ago and my own daughter went through Stanford and it was it was surprising to me the extent to which the ghost of Zuckerberg hung over Harvard and the ghost of the Google guys hung over Stanford I mean that was kind of the cultural ideal of that generation and and I was I considered myself very fortunate in that I went to school at a time when people felt that money was dirty the idea of going to business school when I was an undergraduate, you might as well have announced that you wanted to go and be a, a I don't know, a, 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 you know, a pedophile or something. I mean, it was, it was considered absolutely déclassé. It's like it was joining the establishment. It was, you know, I mean, um, you know, and, and, and in that sense, you know, um, we, were, we were inspired by, by the Beat Generation. I mean, Kerouac was our collective, you know, collectively he was our hero. Gary Snyder was our, our poet laureate. You know, the idea of heading off the open road. And, and, and frankly, Harvard wasn't to some extent as competitive then as it is now, but mercifully the competitive bar was on who could do the coolest thing in a way, you know? Right. So when I, you know, I was literally in, 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 a, in a cafe with my roommate uh, in uh, at Harvard Square, both of us anthropologists, and it's really true. David looked at this map, National Geographic map, map of the world, and he suddenly pointed to the Arctic. Well, I had to compete with him and go somewhere, but not in a real competitive way. But okay, brother, you're going to go there. I'll go here. And I washed my arm and it hit the Amazon. And then I, you know, stumbled into Professor Schulte's office and literally said to him, you know, this is a man who, after all, has sparked the psychedelic era, the greatest Amazonian explorer of the 20th century, a man for whom mountains and national protected areas have been named in South America. And uh, I, I just said, I'm from British Columbia. I've saved up money in a logging camp and I want to go to the Amazon and collect plants like you did. And uh, at the time, you know, you have to understand if I had said the word Amazon to any random hundred people in Harvard Square, no one would even give it a thought let alone ayahuasca, you know, I mean, and, um, uh, and Schultes, rather than asking me my credentials, simply looked across the mound of plant specimens and said, well, son, when do you want to go? So I was committed and, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, I went back to see him on at the behest of my poor mother and just before leaving for Colombia and he had he had three vital no worries go ahead Haley I'm just doing a little uh, podcast honey Okay, bye. My, my wife's a Buddhist and there's a big Buddhist empowerment she wants me to be part of this afternoon. Um, um, uh, you know, and uh, so I, I went back to get advice from him and um, he, uh, you know, he had three vital pieces of advice. He said, don't bother with leather boots because all the snakes bite at the neck. Uh, don't forget to wear a pith helmet because in 12 years he had never lost his bifocals. And the third piece of advice was that I wasn't to come back without trying ayahuasca, the most potent of the hallucinogenic preparations. Now, at that now you, you, you can encounter ayahuasca at every bus stop in America. Right. Uh, but then it was an extraordinarily obscure um, a preparation, even among the, the aficionados of the drugs, drug subculture, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, I was just very fortunate. And th again, that's why you go to a place like Harvard, you know, I mean, I was able to fall into the orbit. I'm not in any way trivializing my experience at Harvard. It was life affirming, life changing and transformative. I mean, you know, I was able to, when I look back on it, I mean, I, I, my, my, my mentor in anthropology, David Mayberry Lewis, was probably the wisest and the most humane Americanist. And, you know, he had himself gone off to live amongst the Chavante at the time, the most feared indigenous group in Brazil, uh, you know, uh, in the 1950s. And uh, he had later, you know, was an activist and he founded cultural survival. He inspired my every idea. He was my intellectual mentor. And then Char, uh, Schultes inspired by the, by the uh, example of his own deeds. I mean, he was a true explorer and merely to walk in his shadow was to not just aspire to greatness, but to believe that you could do anything. You know, I, you know, I remember when I first ran into Schultes uh, after a year and a half in South America, I'd been in, he, I met him in Bogota and he, I hadn't seen him since I had left Harvard. And in that time, I had done a walk across a Darien Gap, which I had done on a kind of a 24 hour notice. Right. And, um, you know, Schultes never asked me about that experience. He never would bother to say, explain to anyone who had no bloody idea what that experience entailed, but he did. Uh, he just would like introduce me from then on. I mean, I used to be his lumberjack from British Columbia. That's how he introduced me when I was a kid. And then it was like, it changed to, this is my lumberjack from British Columbia who's walked the Darien Gap in the rainy season. And that's all he'd say. But, you know, those in the know, that was shorthand for the biggest possible compliment he could have ever given me. Mm -hmm. But he was, the nature of his charisma was he was so understated and he never spoke of his own adventures because he claimed he never had any he said well, only people only people who go ill-prepared have adventures but of course he had had countless adventures that make um the exploits in film of of an indiana jones pale in comparison that, that's okay so there uh first off are, are we good on on time or, or are you going to the the buddhist uh I'm, uh, Duncan, I'm losing you. I'm losing your audio a little bit. Okay. Can you, yeah. Now try now. I, I I was just saying. First off, I just want to make sure we're are, are we good on on time or? Uh, oh, I I can have time to get to the Buddhist thing. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Um. Okay. So there a ton of things I wanted to ask you there. Um. First off, when you talked about the the sort of 
intellectual atmosphere of Harvard at that time. And in comparison with today, um, I don't know if you've read or heard of the book, Excellent Sheep, but it's talking about a lot of people. Um, it, it's a former Yale professor talking about how a lot of his students over time have become um, almost sort of like a, a, a simulacrum of what y- your experience was, where they are doing all these incredible things um, and have all of these uh, incredible points on their resume, but it's almost as though uh, they designed it in advance or with the help of their uh, elders in, in a way to to package themselves. Like I remember seeing uh, when I was in high school, going to like some uh, Stanford presentation and it was talking about all these kids, uh, you know, someone had started this nonprofit when they were 15 and now yeah, it's yeah, yeah. this. And, and it, it almost felt like if the, if the problem that their nonprofit was working on had been solved, that they would almost be kind of bummed out because. Uh, well, then- I mean, I think, you know, we have this commodification of, yes. of experiences and I think it existed back then as much as it does now. I mean, I think that, um, you know, we were all trying to, in a way, in a way, pad our resumes, but not necessarily in a cynical way, just in terms of we were all, um, we were definitely all overachievers at Harvard. I mean, that's what place like Harvard exists for. I mean, I rem- and I think that what's interesting is how the definition of achievement changes through the generations, you know. I mean, I when my daughter went to Stanford, I was just kind of, I mean, it was just bizarre how many of her entering class had, quote unquote, started their own tech companies already, yes. which just seemed to me kind of bizarre, you know. Um, and I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, um, know if, if, um, you know, you know, there's also a, a, a deeper socialization process that goes into class and continuity of class. I mean, one of the things that I noticed, um, you know, I did not come from, uh, the kind of family that normally would send its kids to Harvard. Right. And so in a way, I was exceptional from the start in a way, in ways beyond my uh, understanding. And one of the things that kind of shocked me um, when I got, I think it was a 25th anniversary, uh, you know, yearbook of my class, you know, um, as you go through it. Now, part of this is most of my friends from Harvard were address unknown. I mean, my friends were the, the, you know, the, the extreme, you know, the hippies, the, the, the kind of the bohemians, the, you know, we were, we were kind of the outliers even at college, but, um, but I, I was kind of shocked by the uniformity of outcomes in right. a generation and uh, a, a class that at least on uh, paper prided itself on, on creativity or on being, um, you know, anti-establishment or whatever the word is. No, I mean, the truth is that, that uh, the majority of students who went through Harvard when I went through Harvard ended up like lawyers, doctors, and all the conventional uh, 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 professions. And they would have been in tech if tech had existed at the time. You know, maybe they became in tech, but, you know, in the same way that now, now you could become a lawyer or a doctor. So, I mean, it's not like this, this class of 1975, which was my class, all emerged as bohemians. But, you know, at least, and I, and I think it doesn't mean that everybody who went through that school at that time had an interesting experience. They might have, or they, you know, 
all I know is that the, the, the circle of friends that I met and the, 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 the mentors that I um, had and found um, allowed me to craft a life that certainly has been unusual, uh, rich, and extraordinarily gratifying. But, you know, again, um, there's enormous amount of risk involved that, you know, you know, you know I never think of it as risk. Um, but, uh, you know, at every single, I've written 23 books and every single book has started off with someone saying, how can you write about that? You know, I mean, my, my, my experience in life, and I think this is something I did learn early on, is that there's always someone holding you back. I mean, you know, you know, I only look forward. I never look back over my shoulder. And that's the direction that most people only know. Um, and, and um, you know, it's always been like that, Duncan. I mean, why do you need to go to Harvard? Isn't UBC good enough? Wait a minute, you're supposed to come to Harvard to study uh, history and become a lawyer. That's what you said. What's this anthropology stuff? Wait a minute. You've spent two and a half years in anthropology. You've done very well. And botany? You've never studied biology in your life. Wait a minute. You spent two years in the Amazon collecting plants, actually four years, and you've become the most precocious ethnobotanist of your generation. And you're going to do what? Study voodoo? You know, wait a minute, you've just written two books on voodoo, the most popular books ever written on that on that subject. And and you're going to what you're turning your back on Haitian ethnography and you're going to go where Sarawak to be a, a, a rainforest activist. Wait a minute, you've almost saved Forrest and Borneo. You've written two books, you're doing this and you're leaving all that behind to write a biography of who, you know, wait a minute, you just wrote you know, a biography of Richard Evan Schultes, which is this cult book in Columbia. You're Mr. Amazon and, and you're doing what? World War One? You're not a historian. Everest? Mallory? Tibet? What do you know? Wait a minute. You spent 12 years, your book on Mallory and Everest has won the top prize for nonfiction in the English language. And you're going, what? Back to Columbia? To write a, about a river that's been degraded for 50 years? Wait a minute, you know, you know, I mean, that's the, that's right. a pattern of one's life. I mean, there's always someone. It's like if you cut off your beard, you know, shaved off your hair on your face, there's someone who's not going to like it because they like you like that. You know, I mean, in other words, I've I've always found that that, um, you know, uh, 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 th th you just can't listen to the voices and 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 you have to. I mean, you know, I mean, um you know, I remember when I when I wrote my first book. I mean, I, I mean, I wrote that book for a very simple reason. Um, I had to. Um, I, you know, I I was recruited uh, thanks to Schultes, uh, but Schultes got mad at me. He 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 thought it was he 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 gave me the the, the assignment through Nathan Klein, the great uh, psychopharmacologist, to go to Haiti to look for this strange folk preparation. But Schultes didn't expect me to abandon South American Indians and, and ethnobotany and actually asked to do that as my PhD thesis. And it set up a lot of tension between us because mm -hmm. Schultes um, very much saw me as his protege. It was Tim Plowman and me. We were the lineage, right? And uh, it wasn't, it was a very awkward moment when it became clear to everyone involved that I was more interested really in the ethno part of ethnobotany than the botany part of ethnobotany. Right. Mm. And, and after, after, you know, uh, six years of just thinking about plants uh, and, and collecting 
uh, 6,000 numbers altogether, you know, maybe 24,000 specimens and, and really rare collections because I went to really unusual places. I, it all began to feel a little bit like collecting hay. And I just, I just didn't want to be a taxonomist. And I, I, I didn't really have that faith in, in, in European tech, in, in Western technology, uh, uh, taxonomy as a, as the ultimate classification system, although it's held up pretty well, despite the revelations of genetics. Um, I was interested in intellectual problems and I wanted something that had a, a, a bigger uh, challenge intellectually, you know, and uh, the zombie thing just landed in my lap. But uh, as it did so, you know, Nathan Klein um, set up a, a foundation just to support my work. And if I needed $10,000 by Wednesday, I just had to call Manhattan by Monday night. And I didn't know, didn't know where the money was coming from until one day I went to debrief Klein in his Upper East Side penthouse. And in the corner of the living room was a kind of a um, unctuous uh, toad-like figure who turned out to be the benefactor of this foundation, who was David Merrick, the Broadway producer. And I took David to Haiti. He loved the theatricality of voodoo. He had made a fortune with 42nd Street. And... Um, and we became good friends. Uh, but then unexpectedly, Professor or Nathan Klein died during routine heart surgery and Merrick had a debilitating stroke uh, within a week. So I went from being flush with money to having none. And then I was in London, I walked off the street to a literary agent and essentially walked out with a book contract. Um, but then I finished, used the book contract. I, first of all, I took a girlfriend to Paris and with the money was left over, I finished the field research in Haiti. But then I had to write a book and I wrote two chapters that I thought was the best since the Bible and they rejected it. So then I left Harvard and went to a, I'd come back from Haiti with malaria and hepatitis and I didn't even know I'd been sick because I'd been working only the nights with the secret societies and it was so surreal with all the ritual. I just, I just was in a, already in a constant fever pitch from the scene. But then I actually had malaria and hepatitis, not knowing it, and I was really ill. And um, a friend plucked me up, put me on her farm, and then I had to. And then I taught myself to write. Literally, I taught myself to write. And in seven months, you know, I had books by my my desk. You know, like Hemingway for dialogue, Isaac Dennison for landscapes, and I never copied, but I learned from the masters by osmosis. And um, I had a great story to tell. I just had to figure out how to tell it, and I did. In seven months, the book was edited in a single day and it sold half a million copies. So suddenly I was a writer wow. and uh, uh, I was the only PhD ever made into a Hollywood movie. And, um, and, and then I, after all that, I, I, I defended my thesis and wrote a second book. And then uh, I got a job at New York Botanical Garden. I went through this competitive process and I never really asked what the salary was gonna be. And at the end of this long um, uh, application uh, uh, interview process, uh, they said, well, we think we can get, they offered me the job and then they, it was a postdoc and it was like, well, we think we can get you 19. And I said, 19 what? And they wanted me to live in New York City on $19,000 a year and my wife was pregnant. I mean, I, and I looked at the guy who was a good friend of mine. I said, Mickey, I love you, but you just made a career choice because I just made half a million dollars writing a book. Yeah. So I, right then and there, I just said, well, that's what I'm going to do. Now, at the time, I, I suppose that was, you know, I was totally turning my back on the academic world, um, which I didn't really mind doing. Uh, but having gone through Harvard getting a PhD, I basically said, well, I'm never going to try to be an academic. And, and you could have said that was all a waste of time, but of course it wasn't. 
And then I went off and, and of all things, I decided to, well, I mean, I wrote a few other little things, but I, 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 I decided when Tim died, uh, Tim had AIDS and when he, his death was so sad. And I was doing the eulogy at Field Museum and with everybody weeping in that room, he was such a beloved figure. Um, I just said to myself, uh, Schultes couldn't, couldn't come because he was himself sick. Um, um, and so he sent a tape that ended with the, um, his remarks ended with those famous lines from Hamlet, good night, sweet prince and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. And at that point, there was just so much grief in that room. And as I stood about to deliver the end of the eulogy, I, uh, I just said in my head, I'm going to write a book about these two men to make sure they're never forgotten. And that became the six years of one river, right? Yeah. And uh, that really established my reputation as a writer. And then uh, again, you know, I mean, I wrote a bunch of other books, but uh, the next major, major effort, I, I, was, um, I was just standing at the base of um, the Kanchung face of Everest at a place called Petanringbo, which is higher than any ground, any peak in European, in the, in, in the Alps. And um, my friend Daniel, we were looking at the two vertical miles of ice rising above us to the South Coal. And that's the, the unusual face of Everest that few people see. Um, and, um, and you've got to cross a bunch of passes to get to it. And my friend Daniel, who, you know, who I traveled thousands of miles with, um, just in his inimitable way, began to speak of these Englishmen dressed in tweeds who read uh, Shakespeare to each other in the snow at 23,000 feet. And I was hooked. And that became a project that, that uh, in the end, consumed 12 years. Now, these projects aren't easy. In the case of that book on Mallory, I... I wrote a letter to my agent that resulted in the biggest book advance in the history of any book on mountaineering. But then unbeknownst to me, an expedition set out two and a half months later and found Mallory's body. And there were 12 books out by fall. So that forced me to take my book to a whole nother level of depth, which resulted in the book Into the Silence. But that meant that for, for literally for 12 years, I both had the uh, burden of writing that book, uh, 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 even as I had taken on the position of explorer and residence of National Geographic and was writing all these other books and making 30 films and so on. So for those 12 years, I never, um, I never stopped working. And, and okay, so let, let me ask you about the, the Haiti experience where you're, you're going in. Um, Duncan, you're losing your audio. Uh, Duncan, you're losing your audio. Sorry, can, can you're you hear losing me? your audio. Can you hear me? Yeah, maybe I should turn off my video and it might get a better signal. Sure. Okay. How's that? Is that better? Uh, yeah, that's good. Um, so uh, when you talk about the Haiti experience, right, um, and you're you're writing a book on zombies and voodoo, um, I want to get one of the questions I wanted to ask is, do you think that um, science is somehow privileged over other ways of knowing, or is it just one among many? Because when you go into a scenario like that. I don't think it's just science. I think that, you know, the, the Western way of thinking, you know, all cultures are myopic, yeah. faithful to their own interpretation of reality. 
And, you know, most tribal names translate the people, the implication being the blokes over the hill are savages, right? The word barbarian comes from the Greek word barbarous. If you didn't speak Greek, you didn't exist. Um, but the Aztec had the same notion in Nahuatl. Um, you know, I, and I think it's important to realize that our way of thinking is, is not um, the only way, and it's not even the dom and, and, and its dominance and its ubiquity shouldn't suggest it's a norm. I mean, the triumph of secular materialism may be the conceit of modernity, but it shouldn't suggest that this way of thinking is the norm in the human experience. It's quite the opposite, it's the anomaly. You know, we, since the time of Descartes and the Enlightenment, as we tried to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of absolute faith, uh, threw away all notions of, of, of myth, magic, mysticism, and metaphor. Uh, and that was that was very interesting. It gave us a scientific method. It put a man on the moon. It gave us allopathic medicine, one of humanity's greatest achievements. But it also implied a world in which the earth itself was deanimated. You know, the, the, you know, the, the, the earth became seen as just a stage set upon which only the human drama unfolded. Science, as Saul, Saul Bellow said, made a house cleaning of belief. And we forget that the beliefs and the metaphors is how most people mediated their relationship with the natural world. What I mean by that is that you and I in our tradition were raised to believe that a mountain was a pile of rock ready to be mined, a forest existed to be cut for timber. Well, that made us very different from my godchildren in Peru raised to believe that a mountain was an Apu deity that would direct their destiny, or indeed the Kwakwakwak youth who believes that the rainforest of British Columbia and his homeland are the uh, abode of uh, deities or spirits that will have to be embraced during his initiation. Again, the interesting thing isn't who's right and who's wrong. Is a forest the realm of the spirits? Is it cellulose and bored feet? What's interesting is how the belief system mediates the interaction between the culture and that part of the natural world with profoundly different consequences for the ecological footprint of the culture. So, you know, the First Nations have lived on this coast since the forest came into being, literally, uh, having a very moderate impact upon them. And whereas three generations of thinking about the forest as we do has resulted in them being torn asunder. The same thing with the way we rip open a mountaintop to seek the raw ore. And most societies do not have this kind of extractive model. They do not put people front and center. They interact with the natural world in a way that's based on reciprocity. The simple idea that the earth owes its bounty to people, people in ter turn owe their fidelity to the earth. And that's elaborated on in rituals and beliefs and, and myths, which become moral charters. But that's the way most people think. And the way we have thought about the earth has gotten us into serious trouble by any scientific definition. Climate change has become humanity's problem, but it wasn't caused by humanity. It was caused by a very narrow subset of humanity who think about the world in a particular way and um, have managed to um, consume the ancient sunlight of the world for 300 years, who live in an economic system where economic well-being is defined as perpetual growth on a finite planet, which from most people's point of view would be the economics of delusion. And do you think uh, all these different cultures that you've written about are all different, but do you think there's anything uh, differently different about Western culture that, that makes us uh, unique within all the variation? No, not at all. Okay. 
I mean, you know, every culture has something to say. Each deserves to be heard. You know, the other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts to be modern. Um, each culture, by definition, is a unique answer to a fundamental question. Uh, what does it mean to be human and alive? And when they do so, they do so in the multiple voices of humanity, the 7,000 languages of, of, our, of our linguistic repertoire. And, and you mentioned the 7,000 languages. Of course, as you've talked about, a, a lot of those, I think you said something like 50% of them are, are going to disappear within, uh, you know... A, a yeah, half of them, half aren't being taught to children. And, and the reason this is so poignant is because this, this extraordinary... A backdrop to our age is is happening uh, just in the generation when genetics have have proven the truth of the of the of the sort of the central message of anthropology, which is cultural relativism. In other words, in other words, you know, you know, inspired by Darwin, uh, anthropologists, you know, in the nineteenth century, sort of envisioned an evolutionary progression of society that went from the savage to the barbarian to the civilized to the strand of London. In other words, we, we said that societies advanced in an evolutionary way, and the measure of advancement was the one thing we were particularly good at, which was technology. So we kind of stacked the deck and, and, and comfortably placed yourself at the apex of a pyramid that then swept down its sides to the so-called primitives of the world. Well, that whole model has been ridiculed by modern science because genetics has shown without doubt that the genetic endowment of humanity is a continuum. Race is a fiction. We're all cut from the same genetic cloth. We're all descended from common ancestors, including those who walked out of Africa 65,000 years ago and embarked on this journey of 2,500 generations, 40,000 years that carried us to every corner of the habitable world. But here's the important point. If you accept the truth, and it is a truth, that we all are cut from the same genetic cloth, we all share by definition the same genius. And how that genius is expressed is simply a matter of choice. We think technology is important because it's what we're good at. Others think unraveling the mystic threads of memory inherent in a thousand myths is of importance. The point is that, that um, you know, every culture has got something to say, each deserves to be heard all collectively become of our, our overall repertoire for dealing with the challenges that confront us in the present and in the future. And so to lose a language which is embodies the entire knowledge of a culture is to lose not only a vital branch of the family tree of humanity, but it's also to lose a part of ourselves. And, and that sort of uh, collapse of, of human diversity, uh, I was in Machu Picchu uh, fairly recently. And I remember I was in a, a restaurant at, at, at the bottom and they were playing Billy Jean on the speakers and they had like cheeseburger and spaghetti on the menu. And, and this, it felt very strange. Can you speak a little bit about well, that? Well, that's, that's simply local people taking, taking advantage of the gringos. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, if the gringos didn't want to hear that music and didn't want to eat those hamburgers, that place would go out of business. I mean, you know, this is a difference between a traveler and a tourist. A tourist can't remember where they've been. A traveler doesn't know where they're going. And, and you're talking about a site that is the, the destination for everybody who goes to Peru. So you're going to get this kind of uh, touristic crap anywhere. But I mean, I think the, 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 the other thing is, is that it's not about the traditional versus the modern. The, the most important thing to realize is that these other cultures um, are not quaint and colorful, but somehow destined to fade away as if they're failed attempts at being modern. You know, change is no threat to culture. 
all cultures are always dancing with new possibilities for life. The, the Lakota did not stop being Lakota when they gave up the, 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 the bow and arrow for the rifle any more than your ancestors stopped being whoever you are when they gave up the horse and buggy for the automobile. Change in technology is no threat to culture. What is a threat to culture is power. And in every case, these are dynamic living peoples being driven out of existence by identifiable forces. Those forces can be egregious industrial decisions and policies, or they can be ideological, the ubiquitous cult of the modern, the, the, you know, the, 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 the kind of the blind spread of Western pedagogies and education, uh, or, or indeed um, the Marxist mania of centralized uh, control of the Communist Party of Beijing, you know. But this is actually an optimistic observation because once we realize that humans are not destined to fade away, but they're being driven out of existence, it means that human beings, if we're the agents of cultural destruction, we can surely be the facilitators of cultural survival. So it's not about them and us or the traditional versus the modern or any suggestion that anyone be sequestered like some kind of zoological specimen frozen in time denied the genius of modernity or that we somehow go back to a pre-industrial past. It's how do we all go forward in a way that all people can benefit from the best of modernity, be it technological or medicine, but critically without that engagement demanding the death of who they are as a people. And the reason this is important is that culture is not trivial. Culture is not decorative, Duncan. It's not the clothes we wear, the songs we sing. Culture is ultimately a body of moral and ethical values that we place around each human being in every culture to keep at bay the barbaric heart of humanity. It is culture that allows us to make sense out of sensation, to find order and meaning in the universe, to do as Lincoln said, seek the better angels of our nature. And if you want to know what happens when the constraints of tradition are lost and the individual torn asunder from the comfort of of, of culture, uh, you know, aspiring for levels of affluence that may always be elusive, securing only a place on the lowest rung of an economic ladder that goes nowhere, kind of cast adrift in a sea of disaffection and alienation. Uh, 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 you know, you only have to look at the, the, the points of chaos around the world. Every moment of conflict is a conflict of culture. So culture is not trivial. It's a glue of civilization. And this, I wanted to also, uh, I wanted to ask you this earlier, but you, you mentioned Terrence McKenna as a friend of yours, and, and you've had, uh, you talked about your experience with ayahuasca. Um, for people who've never taken any psychedelics before, it's very much not like, a, you know, like, oh, let's, let's, let's get high or, you know, a trivial experience. Why, why do you feel like this is um, uh, an, an important subject worthy of your your time and effort well i mean first of all you look around the ethnographic record and the desire to periodically elevate the spirit to invoke some technique of ecstasy is so ubiquitous in that record that is part of the basic universal human appetite now that appetite can be met with ordeal with vision quests with dancing with prayer with meditation or with the ingestion of these interesting plants um and, and, you know, the, 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 the scholarship that's always surrounded these plants has always emphasized two things, set and setting. You know, the, the, the mental set you bring to the experience in the physical place 
in its totality in which you use the substance. These substances are neither good or evil. They, 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 they catalyze a kind of ambivalent potential for good or evil. They create a template upon which personal beliefs and ideas and um, inspir- uh, you know, um, uh, uh, stimuli can go to work. And that's why, you know, and, and whereas pharmacologically, they are extraordinarily benign, uh, much safer for you than taking aspirin, for example. Uh, psychologically, by definition, they can be profoundly challenging, which is what is their great um, gift. Uh, the, the, the actual uh, subjective experience is so otherworldly that it's no wonder that these have often been seen to be uh, divine, which is why we use the word entheogen, the plants that reveal the God within. And... Um, uh, as Gordon Wasson famously said, the first European to take the so-called magic mushrooms in, in traditional context, uh, said to try to explain the subjective effects is rather like trying to explain to a blind man what it is to see. But the truth of the matter is that the probably the most powerful uh, takeaway that people have from these substances is a new appreciation of the wonder of the natural world. You know, I, I've never met anyone who's taken any psychedelic. Uh, I, I'm sure people have and gone to some disco in some damn dump of a basement and not exactly had a revelation about photosynthesis. But, but, but certainly if you take these substances in a natural setting, a very common um, uh, 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 takeaway is a, is, a, is a completely new appreciation of the wonder of nature. And God knows we need more of that. And I think it's very interesting that when we look at the sea change that has occurred in my lifetime, where women have gone from the kitchen to the boardroom, people of color from the woodshed to the White House, gay people from the closet to the altar, suddenly kids talking about Gaia or biodiversity terms that were unknown in my youth. Uh, The one ingredient in the recipe of transformation that we expunge from the record is that millions of us took these substances. And never came back the same. I mean, I remember so clearly um, parental concerns that, you know, know, parents saying to you, don't take these things, you'll never come back the same. And our poor parents didn't understand that that was a whole bloody point. We didn't want to come back the same. We were looking for a better world. We were looking, you know, we grew up in a world of of war and racial strife and women being treated like like second-class citizens and gay people having their careers ruined for the hint of, uh, of uh, affection between man and man. I mean, it was just, a, it was a, you know, anyone who's nostalgic for the 1950s either is, um, uh, wasn't there uh, or, or has a sensitivity of a two by four or actually was on the other side, you know, um, a champion of repression. I mean, uh, it, 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 it was a, a hideous time. Uh, uh, in, in so many ways. Gary Snyder, the poet, used to say to me that in the 1950s, he'd hitchhike across America just to be able to have dinner with someone to whom he could relate. Wow. That's, uh, and, and do you think, um, it, are, are you, there, there have been some efforts to sort of uh, legalize these things, like in Oregon, um, they're talking about uh, making psilocybin be uh, you know, at least well, there's, there's two, there's two, there's two things there, Duncan. One is, one is just in terms of the, the Renaissance of psychedelics. It, it, it's, it's a, it's a fantastic thing because the, 
the the clinical potential and the possibilities of these substances is enormous and uh, that 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 potential never began to be realized because of course the government came down so hard on these substances in part because they are subversive yeah. i mean they really do change you right and and uh, in ways that people like the nixon administration were not that keen on but again, that, that suppression of these substances was also part of a war on drugs, which never had anything to do with drugs. It was all, all about Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Nixon's desire to, to draw a division in the American society between what they call the silent majority, who were uh, fearful in some sense or uncertain about these sea changes that were happening all around them, right? Um, I mean, in, in, in a way, the whole sort of divide in America to this day is between, at some level at least, is between those for whom those changes I just mentioned, for gay people, people of color, for women, are those changes deemed to have been good for the society or bad for the society? And at some level, that's the chasm we still have to some extent to this day. And but certainly the war on drugs was all about that and nothing to do about the well-being or concerns for the well-being of any person using these drugs. And now we are 50 years on uh, over a trillion dollars spent. And there are more people in more places using worse drugs in worse ways than ever before. The war on drugs has been the greatest folly in the history of public policy. It has torn countries apart like Colombia where the vast majority of people have never used, let alone seen cocaine, and yet 250,000 have been dead, 7 million displaced. How would the United States feel if Canada had policies of drug consumption, uh, 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 you know, patterns of drug consumption in, in bars and boardrooms across the country, laws that facilitated the creation of a black market and sanctions that did nothing to curb that trade such that 85 million Americans were driven from their homes. Well, that's what happened in Colombia. You know, and I mean, the last year before the peace treaty was signed, the FARC were down to 6,000 cadre, but they made $600 million for extortion and drug trafficking. Well, you give me the Beverly Hills Boy Scouts and I can paralyze Southern California with $600 million. In other words, in other words the war on drugs has caused nothing but agony and, and uh, resulted in the fact that in the United States, there are more citizens with criminal records than college degrees, right? Uh, and and so so this this whole war on drugs has to end. Um, you know, it, it was never about drug use. And uh, in fact, if you think about it, I, I challenge you uh, uh, to name one person you've ever met in your life whose decision to use or not use drugs had anything to do with their legal status. It's not how people make decisions about drugs. Um, uh, you'll find that if drugs were completely legalized, use would plummet because a huge part of what causes a use is the energy and the money involved in the trade. You know, um, you know, there are no good and bad drugs. There are only good and bad ways of using drugs. And one good way of using a drug is not to use it. But the point is that if you legalize drugs tomorrow, you would find that um, uh, the drug consumption would drop uh, we would begin finally be able to treat drug addiction as a, a, a health uh, problem. Um, you know, you know how bizarre is it that now, uh, after 50 years of war on drugs, the largest cause of mortality for Americans under 50 is no longer car accidents, but the overuse and abuse of legal addictive op opioid drugs. 
that's what we've got from the war on drugs. You know, we don't judge drugs by uh, it, the war on drugs. Uh, you know, its greatest child is crystal meth. You know, the poor man's cocaine. Yeah. You know, every time we intervened, we only made it worse. And the truth of the matter is, is that those who are, are, are fighting the war on drugs have no interest in winning it any more than the cartels want the war on drugs to go away. You know, I had a, I, I, we studied coca for, for three years for the U.S. government. We showed that this was a plant that had been used with no evidence of toxicity, let alone addiction for 4,000 years. A plant full of vitamins, full of calcium essential to a diet that lacked a dairy product, full of enzymes that enhance the body's ability to digest carbohydrate at high elevation, perfect for the tuber-based diet of the Andes. Uh, and at the end of all of that, there was a job opening at the USDA that my friend Timothy said, I want you to apply for, but if you take the job, I'll kill you. And I went out to the Beltsville USDA and walked into this office and I immediately knew this guy wasn't USDA, he was DEA. And the first thing I knew about him was not only work for the Drug Enforcement Agency, he was himself a drug addict. I couldn't get in the room for the cigarette smoke. And then secondly, I noticed that he was uh, had his walls decorated with seized paraphernalia. It was like going into the office of a anti-pornographer and seeing pornography on all the walls. And then I sat across from him. It was in the 1970s. He had a big belly, butterfly collar with big hairy chest, gold chains around his neck, and gold nuggets on his uh, fancy uh, Rolex watch. And I thought, where have I met this guy before? And he turns out that the only thing he'd concluded from our studies was that we were good at finding coca fields. He wanted me to go back to South America, sneak into the fields, get all the biological pests that destroy coca plants, bring them back so they could be manipulated biologically and then reintroduce to destroy more coca plants. That's all they concluded about our work over three years. And I'm looking at this cat and I'm thinking, fuck, where have I seen you before? And I realized I'd never seen him before, but I've met him a thousand times. He was the Medellin cartel. I knew those guys in the early 70s. Carlos Leder, who, who was the main tr transport officer for the Escobar cartel, was right up the road. I mean, and, and they were sleazeballs. And this guy was a sleazeball. And they were absolutely two sides of the same coin. Neither one of them, for the slightest moment, wanted to win the war on drugs. The war on drugs, in some years, had a $60 billion budget. Every single piece of the U.S. government had, 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 had its claws in that pie. Uh, the, US, uh, the Washington Post did a great expose showing as much. These people had no interest whatsoever on winning the war on drugs, and certainly not legalization because it would put them out of work. In the same way, the pot growers of Humboldt County were the most vocal uh, um, uh, uh, people to object to the legalization of marijuana because it was going to destroy their business. These are criminals who, who make money selling these drugs um, to innocent people at exorbitant prices, drugs that no one knows are even clean or not. Mm -hmm. And this is the consequence of the war on drugs, right? Legalized drugs and, and the whole society shifts. We send a message to to African-Americans that they're not second-class citizens. You know, I mean, I mean you realize the, 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 the criminal sanctions for crack cocaine, which is just a form of cocaine, are a hundred times those of powdered cocaine, simply because white people like powdered cocaine and, and, uh, and black people smoke crack just because they can't afford a gram of cocaine. 
And 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 you have this bizarre situation where the government's spending fifty billion dollars a year uh, on on uh, uh, on the war on drugs to try to stop cocaine. American consumers are snorting one hundred sixty five tons of cocaine every year and spending fifty billion dollars to buy that cocaine. Yeah, that's okay. So the I, truth I, is, coca is no more cocaine than potatoes or vodka. <laughs> what we need to do is break to a part and make a, par- a proper nutraceutical product for a, a plant known to the Inca as a divine leaf of immortality that has been used with no evidence of toxicity, uh, let alone addiction for 4,000 years, a plant stimulant that is so mild but so helpful that it would displace coffee, tea, and chocolate in the cupboards of every American if only they had access to it. Um, okay, so the, I've, I've already taken an hour of your time, so I, ca- I kind of yeah. want to wind down here, but the last... Right. The subject I wanted to ask you about is you wrote this piece uh, in Rolling Stone about the the decline of America, and as we're talking about all these different uh, cultures and so on, I'm I'm reminded of this other person I talked to for the podcast, Richard Grant, who um, followed around a bunch of American nomads, uh, people in in like the the desert or the Southwest who would just be in their RVs or uh, Slab City, if you've ever heard of it, it's kind of like an anarchist. Uh, uh, you know, ramshackle town uh, in the desert. And um, all of those nomads were not trying, they were trying to get away from the sort of uh, modern consumerist lifestyle. But the way they did it was by being hyper individualistic and trying to get away from other people and almost be sort of like anti-society. And that feels like a very... um, I don't want to say American solution to the problem, but it seems like a big part of. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the America has sort of, particularly after World War II, embraced the cult of the individual with kind yeah. of iconic intensity and it gave, gave us great mobility and freedom, but it also, you know, uh, challenged the bonds of community and connectivity that, that support the well being of most people around the world. Look, I mean, you, the, the generation of, of, of contemporary nomads is also a reflection of of today's economy you know um when you have situations where um the price of real estate um no longer reflects local economies i mean traditionally you know you you a house in birmingham alabama might be cheaper than a house in in san francisco simply because the economy of san francisco was more robust and and uh and people made more money, and so the housing costs more money. You know, classic supply and demand. But now you have a situation of a global real estate market where these cities of de- that are desirable, for San Francisco, Vancouver, uh, L.A., New York, uh, London, Paris, whatever, um, you're competing against everybody in the world. And so we have this really bizarre thing, which is quite unprecedented since... Um, it's, it's all come about in my lifetime, where a whole generation of young people can't even dream of owning a home in the city of their birth. And, and th- this represents a really remarkable uh, disconnect sociologically. And I think um, people are, you know, you, you, as a young person, you face a choice. Do you, do you want to um, be, you know, unless, unless you're lucky enough to have one of those 1% jobs, um, you find yourself spending well over 50% of your income uh, on housing. 
Well, why not take to the open road? I mean, I, I think there, there's, there's, there's a sign there of, um, you know, young people, you know, the, the rise, for example, in college education, you know, you know, I mean, the, the, there was a, there was a time when, even when I went to college, when the percentage of the population that went to college uh, was negligible compared to today. Now college has sort of displaced what once was high school. And you go to college almost as an extension of high school, but to do so you incur insane student debt, which did not happen in my generation. You know, I mean, uh, I think even, I mean, you have to take inflation into account, but I mean, I think Harvard's annual was about $8,000 when I went there in the 1970s. Well, of course there was serious inflation, but that's a far cry from what it costs today or any, any school today. The UC system in California was the envy of the world and, and tuition was virtually free in the 1960s. Now it's not. So, so, you know, again, I think what you're seeing in these nomadic camps, and there are probably a lot of other forces at work, um, is the fact that, the, that, that, that this has become a, a society in America just since the 1950s. Look, in the 1950s, marginal tax rates were 90%. That sent a message to people. Um, the average CEO would have a salary 20 times that of a white-collared staffer. Now the CEO's salary would be four to 500 times more. The top 1% control a trillion dollars of assets, the lower half of American people have more debt than assets. The top three richest Americans control more wealth than the poorest 160 million. And so what you're also seeing is young people trying to come to terms with that world, a world of the haves and the have nots. And the economy of the United States in the 1950s was much more analogous to that of Denmark than it is today. And so if you don't have an avenue through tech into the 1%, what indeed are your choices? I mean, my, my daughter, 32 years old, uh, her education, if I add up all the bills, cost her family about a million dollars. And she's wanted to be a school teacher. Bless her for that. We need school teachers. But she's earning um, enough, uh, what she earns as a school teacher in British Columbia would never in her lifetime allow her to own a home. Right. So what kind of, how can a society structurally um, uh, endure that, right? It, it, it just doesn't work. And so you're looking at, uh, you know, part of what that Rolling Stone piece was all about is that, you know, America continues to look into the mirror and see only the myth of its own exceptionalism, whereas the reality is that that myth um, lies all about our feet in shattered bits of glass. And uh, I guess my, my sort of last question here is, do you think there's anything from this whole period of COVID and lockdown and our response to it uh, that we can sit back and, and reflect and learn about our own culture? To... Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, there's so many uh, positive things that can come out of COVID. I mean, first of all, let's hope that we finally realize that we're biological beings on a biological planet. You know, we saw the fecundity of the earth. We saw, you know, the industrial uh, engine shut down for a short time. 
And suddenly, before you knew it, the skies cleared over the Himalaya. You know, the rivers cleared in the in the rivers in, in the cities of of Colombia. You know, the, the canals of Venice Venice were clear. We saw, you know, wild boar in the streets of Barcelona, grizzly bear and wolves in the Valley of Yosemite. We saw the incredible resilience of the natural world, and that should lend urgency to our concerns about climate change. And it has. I mean, during the COVID period, you know, slightly unacclaimed in all of our obsession with Trump and the election and COVID, uh, we saw the total transformation of the internal combustion engine as one manufacturer of vehicles after another announced its firm deadlines to eliminate the use of fossil fuels in its fleet within the immediate reach of our own lives. It's unbelievable to think about that. Who could have guessed? And we've also discovered that there's a difference between travel and travel. In other words, I look back on my travel schedule, as I said, like a violent hallucination, you know, leaving some, going somewhere every Thursday. And now I, now all of that, I mean, people aren't going to rush back to the uh, annual executive meeting in New York. People aren't going to be running to that ball bearing manufacturers associated meeting in Pittsburgh. I mean, people are going to discover that, that there's absolutely no need really for any kind of live meeting of any sort, except when real creative synergies are at stake, right? And so I think we'll see that people will rediscover their love of meaningful travel and, and the travel sector, the economy will rebound and it's the biggest sector of the global economy. But I think people are gonna think twice before enduring either the grotesque inefficiencies of a daily commute on clogged highways or indeed the, the weekend warrior rush off to Chicago for the Monday meeting only to fly back to Pittsburgh on the Monday afternoon. I mean, I think all of that's going to shift. And by the same token, I think that uh, movie theaters, I would not be investing in movie theaters if I were you or in retail outlets. I think all of this stuff, I think all of this has brought us into a digital world um, at a speed that would have taken uh, a generation to occur. I mean, just before COVID, if I had said to a client that I don't want to come and give you a speech, but I'll do a speech over Skype, they would have laughed me off the stage, right? Um, if, if I had said to a major um, a boss of mine that I really didn't want to go back to Toronto for that executive meeting because I would rather do it by, you know, internet or phone, I would have lost my step on the corporate ladder, right? But now we've come to realize that... Uh, that, that Zoom serves that function. And by the same token, young people of your generation are, are realizing that, you know, first of all, every job is essentially some iteration of looking at a laptop screen in whatever your vocation is. And that can be done now with 5G anywhere. And suddenly people aren't just moving from Manhattan to the suburbs, they're moving from Manhattan to rural areas where you can be, you know, close to a satellite small town, anything from uh, you know, Bangor, Maine to, to uh, you know, Port Angeles, Washington. And those towns actually have become quite hip and they all have good restaurants. They've all got bookstores. And besides, you don't need bookstores anymore. In a sense, you got Amazon, you know. And so suddenly life is being decentralized. And I think the, that will come together with the, the, the insane real estate uh, values in these major cities to cast your generation to the wind. And uh, suddenly you're going to find that you can afford where you're living and you can have a quality of life that was un, uh, not possible as you're trying to all cluster together uh, in and around these sort of um, tech hubs. 
Yeah, I'm 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 here in Branson, Missouri, right now. Very well, there you go. Very different experience. Um, wait, listen, I'll I'll let you go. Um, is there anything you want to promote? Plug? Get off your chest? Well, I guess you know it'd be nice of you to promote my new book, Magdalena of Dreams. Um, uh, you know, and um, uh, you know, if you do an intro, and uh, and send me a link when you put it up in the name of the podcast and all that. Sure, and, and people can get that book anywhere, Amazon. Oh yeah. Cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, great. Uh, Wade, you're you're a fascinating guy, uh, inspiration. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Duncan. Thanks a lot. All righty. Take care. You bet. All right. Thank you to Wade Davis, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time. <laughs>